feature presentation. Welcome back to another Untitled TIFF Review. I am one of your hosts, Matt Rohrbeck. Alongside, he's allergic to tomatoes, but he is tomato meter approved, Eric Marchin. It's going to be a lot of work to put those subtitles in, so... I know. (laughs) Surprise, motherfuckers! We're reviewing uh, Mr. Neff, directed by Steven Soderbergh. You mean Mr. Mr. Soderbergh? (laughs) Yeah. Um, It is a re-edit of the 1991 film Kafka. That that madman, Steven Soderbergh, comes to TIFF, goes, I'm premiering a brand new film for you guys. Uh, I get into the cinema, Eric. New. Um, two beers deep. We had two beers and I had a poutine at dinner. I get in. I'm well, you had full. two beers. Um, I had uh, yeah. a Diet Coke. A Diet Coke. I sit down. Two, um, two women in front of me turn around and they go, so what do you think it's going to be? And then, you know, you were joking about on Twitter and I said, I think Eric is absolutely correct. Well, even He's before the festival began, when we were talking about that, I I mean, like I like when when you hear new Soderbergh movie, you obviously look at his filmography and you see like what he's working on right now. He currently has a film with Zoe Kravitz in post-production for HBO Kimmy. Max. Yeah, which probably still isn't finished yet. Um, and then a couple other things that are in the works that he's been developing for a while. He's got another TV show that was just announced that he's going to be uh, doing shortly called um, Full Circle or something to that extent. And um, so you're thinking like, OK, maybe did he shoot something on the fly between one of these productions, whether it be, you know, No Sudden Move and Kimmy or did is there something that like maybe you know, he's had for a while that um, you can go back into the archives of, uh, you know, uh, online interviews that he's done or with print press and like, look to find the clues. Uh, Mr. Policeman, I gave you all the clues. Uh, Or maybe he re-edited somebody else's movie or, or maybe it's a film that he's always been talking about re-editing and, and basically remaking in the version that he's always wanted to, whether it be, Kafka, which was his second film that um, he wasn't happy with when uh, Miramax released it and obviously was kind of putting it or positioning it as an Oscar player after, you know, Jeremy Irons had won the Oscar for Reversal of Fortune and was also coming off of the success of, you know, uh, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. And um, you look at something like Full Frontal, which he's also talked about having uh, another cut of, and Schizopolis, the one movie that he quote-unquote stars in, which is, uh, you know, experimental in its own right. Um, so, you know, thinking about all of that, you have to kind of consider, okay, well, what's the most logical step? Okay, he's going to be he's going to be doing the... He, Soderbergh is the ultimate hustler. And what he was able to do we talked about this after watching the movie and we'll talk a little bit about the plot or what it, what it is now compared to what it was then. But I mentioned this to you um, when we were walking out of the theater and kind of what it is almost, I I never went to one of them, but if you're from Toronto and you'll see these bulletin board posts or you used to anyways um, of this cinema forum uh, that was run by a very problematic uh, individual named Reg Hart, um, where he would play movies like 
Nosferatu uh, with a Radiohead um, soundtrack instead of like, you know, like the classical score um, that would be accompanying almost the... remixing movies. Yeah. 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 I mean, people have always even talked racer about... trash, which is what, you know, Peter Kaplowski, um, you know, is a huge fan of. And he brought them to Toronto to do like unofficial Midnight Madness racer racer trash remixes at the Royal this year. And if you've watched their stuff on Twitch, um, they kind of do a similar thing where they take a movie and they kind of distort it and put different music on it and kind of turn it into something else. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and, I mean, like even going back further, I mean, the old adage was like, Oh, you know, smoke a a joint and watch the wizard of Oz with With uh, dark Dark side Side of the moon. moon, Right. And that's exactly what this movie almost is. Soderbergh, you know, instead of booking the Royal or booking sort of a, a rep theater Soderbergh was able to book Tiff to essentially Princess of Wales yeah, on the to, last night the, or yeah, last night to essentially launch what will probably end up being you know this uh self-released blu-ray box set down the line of some of these movies that he's re-edited to sell on his website which is ingenious I mean the man is a king in terms yeah, of just a self-profiting yeah like and he's earned it too like he's he's just oh, yeah. an interesting guy an interesting filmmaker and you know hearing all about that and and Matt you specifically were talking about this right before the movie began uh and a couple With these women. Two women yeah 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 so uh, getting back to that so the two women in front of me were like what do you think it's going to be and talking with Eric throughout the week, you kind of were like, I think it's the Kafka re-edit. And I was like, Eric, I think you're right. Like, it's like, there's nothing else it could be. Like, if it was Kimmy from, uh, you know, I, I think we would have known that. Like, I think that would have leaked that. Um, so I'm like, it has to be a re-edit. And you were just like, if it's Kafka, I'm going to laugh my ass off. And then, so I said this to these two women in front of me. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I think it's a re-edit of a movie he made 30 years ago. <laughs> And they're like, that's not new. And I was like, yeah, I mean, sure. I'm like, but I, that's what I honestly think it's going to be. And then they went on to ask me my favorite movie and my favorite Soderbergh movie and all this stuff. Um, and you said Kafka. Right, uh, yeah. Right <laughs> when I uh, told them that I could just see the disappointment in their faces. Uh, and Eric, did they get up and leave 20 minutes in? They absolutely did. <laughs> So right. we'll get to the movie now though. So yeah, Soderbergh comes out and he even prefaces like tries Cameron to Cameron Bailey too. Like, like yeah. that's amazing as well. Like, What's your favorite Soderbergh movie? Mine's this and this. And sometimes and it's this. this, but now it's this. And they're trying to soften the blow of what it is ultimately going to be. And I, I sold out Princess of Wales, social distancing. So you got to think 50% capacity, but yeah. still probably like a thousand people. But you also have to understand that maybe there are, there is probably a decent amount of people there that, that are, knew what they were getting. Into yeah. And, and they're open to it or yeah, they won't, they won't mind because it's Steven Soderbergh. And like I was uh, sitting uh, a couple seats away from Mark Hansen from Bay street video. And, and, you know, he's, he's a really wonderful film critic and uh podcaster as well. And a huge Steven Soderbergh fan. And, um, you know, we were talking about that exact same thing uh, right before the movie began or right when the introduction began. And it was just so funny, like hearing Cameron Bailey kind of set the stage and kind of try and then to... right away you go, I know what's happening. Right yeah. Now. And then Soderbergh comes out and talks about being this kind of like, you know, in this state of euphoria due to, you know, the to the COVID, but also being a film critic and a filmmaker and 
having this bag of weed and doing something. Yeah, he really called strange. he called it like what my my idea here was was what if a deranged film critic slash fan had a giant bag of weed and all of the footage that I used for the shooting of Kafka and re remade it into something completely new on top of that. Also having my Spotify playlists all to their like access. <laughs> and then he's just like preface it. And he's like, so let me know what you think. And then he's like, he didn't even announce that it was, you know, Mr. Neff, which is the, what the movie is ultimately titled. Um, what would have only, like, what would have made this only like, just like perfect, like, from beginning to end isn't even the, what's in the movie or how the movie was sort of um, presented, but it would have been amazing if Soderbergh was in the lobby selling merchandise of, you know, this film, but all of his other stuff, like he does on his website, because it almost feels like that in a weird way. Like it has this kind of rock concert quality to it, where you're coming to see, the filmmaker even before the movie right like a lot of people are there because it is steven soderbergh's name on it like if you were to present and nothing against an up-and-coming filmmaker or somebody that has a really like that that has a great film that they maybe want people to discover on its own merits but you know that with this the reason why people are coming to it is because of Soderbergh. It's not just because it's a film that is a mystery movie. Like if you were to just say we have a mystery movie, surprise screening, yeah, surprise screening, that isn't probably going to be enough to, to pique the curiosity of, of I most think, people. Right. I think it would, but then you're setting up even more disappointment. Cause then people run wild with, is it nightmare alley? Is it this? Is it like, if you just say secret screening and you don't, set it up with who it's from or anything like that people will think a myriad of different things uh, in I, I my guess opinion. i guess i agree with you to a certain extent but at the same time if you if you say like okay like say if it was guillermo del toro then you're automatically gonna think it's nightmare alley like no, you're but not... i'm just saying if you said surprise screening and you didn't say who it was from or right. anything like then i think people think it's something brand new but i think I mean, even more people case, would be people hesitant thought. though because it's not there's 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 something about that surprise that I don't know if people would be willing to go at this point, even if it just said like it was sure. that vague. You're because, saying like during COVID and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, but even in general, because again, it's like I don't want to waste like $40 on a ticket that's just a surprise. Yeah, it could be Nightmare Alley, but it also could be this small again, no offense to any. I love surprise films. screenings. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, I but I with Soderbergh's name, them, but... there's there's a certain amount of recognition that goes with that right where like you're you're not just saying but here's like, the thing oh so it's my a surprise movie is... it's a Soderbergh film or like if it was a Guillermo del Toro movie I'd be like it's a Guillermo del Toro movie I get you, you know? give people a nugget by saying what the filmmaker is but my argument back to uh, is like I think when you just say surprise screening when New York has a surprise screening or Sundance has a surprise screening it's usually like a big movie right like right. it's usually something that's like very anticipated or six months down the line so early to see it or something like that where i think you set people up by saying it's a new film by steven soderbergh saying it's a surprise screening that you can kind of get away with this without you know too much backlash but we should get into the movie so essentially you know it starts and you know the titles come on the music you're like this is interesting it's in black and white then you immediately realize it's kafka and then mr neff comes on and, and well right when jeremy iron's name pops up for even someone who hasn't seen the original kafka so we have two 
unique perspectives here because I've never seen Kafka. You have seen Kafka. Yes. You said it's been a while. Yep. Um, but it, it was such a fascinating experience. And I think, you know, you put it very well at the beginning, Eric, saying it felt like this underground kind of like experimental cool movie club thing that you went to where I found it one of the most uni- unique kind of TIFF premieres that I've been to because of that. And, you know, he even prefaced before the movie being like, you might think something's wrong with the audio, but I assure you <laughs> nothing will be wrong with the audio. And then so as the movie starts, you hear music and it's like sometimes you get that jazzy kind of ocean style music he likes using at the beginning at least and then but there's also uh, this some psychedelic kind of yeah kind of yeah 70s yeah music to it and you're like this doesn't fit at all and then people start talking (laughs) quotes um and nothing comes out of their mouth and there's just color-coded uh subtitles based on who's speaking so mr neff the titular mr neff uh, formerly the artist formerly known as Kafka, um, which in is itself talking, is very Kafka-esque. Is, yeah. And uh, he has white subtitles and then everyone else is color coded depending on when they're in a scene and things like that. And the movie is completely silent using all a lot of the same footage from Kafka and some stuff we probably haven't seen before. Eric, you can get into that in a second. And yeah, it has this weird eccentric soundtrack to it that has some modern stuff, has some, you know, funky jazz kind of uh, uh music in it Some but it's all would... orchestral too we should mention yeah. that where like at one point you hear uh metallica's enter sandman but it's all done orchestrally in the same way yeah. that like you know jungle cruise used yeah. metallica uh you know with with working with in collaboration with james newton howard um mm-hmm. and it's just funny that to think that like this huge disney movie you know uses a band that at you know in the in the 80s and 90s was considered to be sort of against you know mainstream and rebellious and now is being used by a major conglomerate and then also is being used by by steven soderbergh which actually kind of fits perfectly because i could see him having used that in the early 90s you know because soderbergh for a lot of people like obviously again this was his sophomore film after sex lies and videotape and and you know he he was coming with this new group of filmmakers you know the tarantinos the spike lees the the spike jones like they were all coming at this time where they were defining you know cinema for the 90s and kafka is this really weird kind of film for him that in the underneath that's another movie that we'll i'll talk about a little bit as well in a minute um where after sex lies and videotape comes out you know it's this movie where you take these you know big mainstream actors of the time james spader andy mcdowell peter gallagher and you have them talk about very um intimate and sexual sort of things and desires and it was kind of taboo you know at the time and cutting edge and now you look back at it and it's kind of silly and dated because it's one of those cliched movies where a character picks up a a video cam recorder and records things but then it was like cool right yeah um and then like thinking like oh this indie director and you know the weinsteins were like oh let's get him to make you know a studio period piece and it's not actually too dissimilar to the way that like 
Marvel or some studios work where they come in and pick up a Sundance filmmaker who's made something. Yeah. Yeah, And and then they say like, oh, we'll give you the keys to go and do this, but we're still kind of controlling everything within, within that realm. And so that's exactly kind of what Kafka was with the exception is that Soderbergh's sort of his sort of idea for what Kafka was going to be was going to be a black and white um it, it, it not necessarily wasn't going to be um silent because there was there was talk of him doing a german dub with the american mm-hmm. actors but doing like a dubbed over version but it was going to be experimental and even though um the theatrical cut of Kafka doesn't work. And again, it's been a while since I've, I've seen that version. What you're getting isn't necessarily a stuffy period piece. You're getting almost his take on a Terry Gilliam film, especially in the third act where things get really sort of, um, sort of more surreal and out there with the camera work. But even in some of the earlier scenes, like he was trying to do something different within the context of just your classic kind of awards baity movie, but it was taken away. Yeah. Yeah, It was taken away from him. And um, ultimately he has been obsessing over the film for the last 30 30 years. years. And I think that actually is interesting and worth having a conversation in itself because it says something about Soderbergh as a person for a guy that maybe just can't let something go. But I think that's a lot of like, I mean, the old saying is like, you're never finished with a movie. You just, you know, put it out there. Right. Right. But some people are able to walk away and, and and just go on on to the next thing where with something like this, that was a failure at the time. He seems like he's really disappointed in that and has wanted to go back. Yeah. And never got to make the movie that he wanted to. And again, Mm -hmm. this also goes to the underneath where, um, for people that don't know about that movie, that was kind of his first, sort of crack at a neo-noir with Peter Gallagher. Um, you know, some people, there are some people that really do like it and it's not, it's not a bad movie per se. It's just, it's kind of a minor sort of thriller overall, but it is worth checking out if you're a Soderbergh completist or just kind of interested within the genre. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those films that Soderbergh himself doesn't even like to even talk about. Like that's the kind of movie he, he just does not like that film and he, he won't even touch it to like re-edit it or look at it. Um, where for the longest time, the only way to get it was through um, the Criterion uh, Blu-ray DVD of King of the Hill. Uh, and more recently, Kino released the it. The Fox animated show? No, 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 no. Steven Soderbergh's King of the <laughs> Hill, know, which is his coming-of-age film being with uh, Jesse Bradford and uh, Catherine Heigl in, a, in an early performance. Um, and so that was on the that was a part of the Criterion um, Blu-ray of that. But then Kino uh, Lorber released uh, a, 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 an individual edition not too long ago. But you look at that and you're kind of like, okay, well, why hasn't he been obsessing over like fixing that movie or doing something with that the way that he has with Mr. Neff or the way that he supposedly has with Full Frontal or Schizopolis, you know? So I I think that there is something there in terms of that hubris and ego to kind of fix things. And he's also, again, a guy that has talked to other filmmakers after watching their works and said – you know, this is how I would change things or this is how I would edit things to the point where like he's pissed off some people like which no one wants to hear. They're like, you know, Paul Schrader specifically. Yeah. yeah. You know, Um, but yeah, he so he's he's always been a fascinating guy. And what he's done here is created this. I think you put it best as this sort of 
like this weird psychedelic experimental silent era film, but modernized with, you know, music that is, you know, funky and surreal. And then also incorporating, you know, the same meta qualities that some of Kafka's literature has where you have the main character, Mr. Neff, formerly known as Kafka, who maybe still is Kafka, um, you know, working for this insurance company, but also getting caught up in this rebellion between uh, the hierarchy being the castle and uh, rebels that are sort of infiltrating uh, on a ground level through this insurance company. And um, you know, as the movie progresses, you see Kafka kind of, you know, writing down um, these little sort Mr. of Mr. Neff, Mr. Neff or Kafka <laughs> or, you know, Jeremy Irons uh, writing, you know, his stories and even the 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 nitrate changing in terms of like, mm-hmm. you know, going black and white to like not a sepia, but like an orangey. Yeah, it's like a sickly tone. kind of like cigarette burnt kind of look to it. Where, yeah, it's a good way. Yeah. And, and, and again, a lot of silent era films kind of used either one of those. So um Again, eventually getting, going into color when you go into the castle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and that was true of the original version as well. It's just how you get there is 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 changed uh a little bit. But um watching the film, I think you you again summed it up nicely. This is probably one of the best experiences I've had at TIFF, just in terms of being something really special and just and unique, unique. Yeah. Um yeah. and and seeing something that yeah, is is somewhat familiar but new and watching a filmmaker kind of do something that's a little unorthodox and i think that that's and it's a oh, it's he's a, a he's fun madman it's just fun yeah but it's like, a fun exp- the movie itself is is an archival exercise and experience but it's still weirdly enjoyable and it moves oh, the at music, a great I think pace. carries it. Yeah. The music is really carries it. And I think just the strange nature of no audio, but you have all the Foley effects in the, in the, you know, the sound in the background. So whether it's footsteps or all of the sound effects are there. So you have this weird mix of a, a of a, a soundtrack, not even a score um, with the sound effects. And then these color coded, uh, with the movie being mostly in black and white and this kind of cigarette um, yellowy kind of tone throughout it, the color coded even um, uh, subtitles are even engaging where if, cause you have to read along throughout the whole thing um, that you don't necessarily know exactly what character they're coming from when there's three or four people talking. Um, you can kind of match it cause it does match when people are talking on screen. Um, but it just had this, you know, yeah, it's just, this experimental nature to it that you're like, this guy is a madman to come to TIFF and premiere this movie here when it's something he would have just released for free on his website or, right. or something like that where it, and it's just like, I don't know. It keeps your interest. I think I, at, at times I was a little confused at what was happening. Cause I found it, you know, a little hard to follow when you, you know, when there's no dialogue and you're reading and first time seeing the movie and, and things like that where there were times where I'm like, wait, what is happening? But then it was always engaging because another another needle drop would happen or some sort of weird, you know, piece of music that wouldn't necessarily fit the time period or even what's happening. But it just 
had this energy to it the whole movie that it carried it even being a silent film and it's obviously not going to work for everyone because there were walkouts and like uh the women in front of me and i saw a few other people in the orchestra where you were sitting eric uh get up and leave but um i don't know like it, it really just kind of was a fun experience um seeing this kind of remix uh of a movie in a big venue like princess of wales and the movie itself i think you know uh, it's hard to compare because i haven't seen the original but this version of the movie i thoroughly enjoyed for you know if this was the original version i'd be like wow what a interesting choice it would be pretty groundbreaking if that if if he was allowed to make that movie back in in 91 um but even now you're watching it like i feel like you're getting in the mindset of steven soderbergh watching this movie where you're thinking like okay i'm starting to see how you know the mechanics of his brain work and sort of how what he was you know trying to do with the original one and and obviously wasn't able to do um it's also just nice seeing people like you know the late Sir Alec Guinness uh, and uh, Ian Holm and Brian Glover again uh, on on the big screen. Um, and there is some stuff like even in the original one that I kind of took for granted with the camera work and some of the reveals. Like even though I, I'm not sure, like you can, I feel almost like someone like Alex Prius maybe saw this, you know, the guy who directed the crow and then dark city specifically, and maybe took some tips and obviously also is a Terry Gilliam fan, but I really love sort of all the stuff that takes place in the castle when it's in color and sort of how far that goes and the weirdness of it. And mm-hmm. even though again, the theatrical cut doesn't really work there's stuff in there that kind of feels like it was ahead of its time even if that sounds cliche yeah i agree the cinematography and you know whatever he he had access to the negatives i think so like it looked gorgeous like for a movie that's 30 years old and um like you know presented in the best way possible with that sound and the you know two three nine widescreen properly masked at, at the princess of wales um, you know, I'm always amazed because you just see how great stuff on that was shot on film holds up if you get the right transfer, right? Like, like if you get a good 4K transfer of a movie from 30 years ago, it looks like it was shot yesterday. And like, yeah, I did feel like, you know, the stuff in the castle, especially um, I really, really enjoyed. But the, the whole movie looked gorgeous, both the black and white, even the cigarette yellow stain stuff and then the color stuff all looked really, really nice. Yeah, it's and again, like if you're a Soderbergh fan and 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 he does release this on a box set, which he's been implying that he's going to at some point, um, you know, it's it's worth picking up and it's worth watching. And it's just fast. It's just a fascinating, you know, archival experience. And to look at somebody who, again, you know, has an obsessive sort of component to their personality that couldn't let this thing go and had to kind of, you know, reshape this thing in the vision that he originally saw it in, um, you know, it, it, it makes it worthwhile. And you're just thinking mm-hmm. to yourself like, okay, yeah. Like to your point, like there are some filmmakers that, you know, how do you know if a painting's done or how do you know if a, um, you know, a piece of music is done and, and sometimes it's never just, done. You're just okay. Putting it in. Right. You're but then there are like, some people that are just totally, they can, they can completely divorce themselves from the work where they just look at it as a job where Soderbergh sure. is a guy that, you know, 
even now his movies are very experimental. He was kind of one of the first guys that kind of like really brought to to the point of like, you know, he's making one for them and, and one for him when, you know, he goes and makes the ocean sequels and then goes in and does, you know, bubble or the girlfriend experience, which again, don't always work, but there's something really interesting there in sort of doing these lo-fi movies in between studio films. But then also when he's doing studio movies, interjecting them with kind of a, a, a more indie sensibility that has, that that doesn't always kind of translate when you know sort of indie filmmakers go to the big leagues and sometimes their voice can get lost where Soderbergh like even you know no sudden move which I wasn't like completely sold on but I did like moments of it as you eat a uh a, a, a is it protein bar it's a cliff bar Cool. Uh, there's no cliff bars in uh, uh, Mr. Enough, unfortunately, but um, but you're watching, you know, no sudden move and the way that he uses kind of, you know, these widescreen lenses and, you know, the way that he his camera movements work. It, there's just something strange and almost like it's been made by a person more so than it has been by a committee. And that's something I don't that- know if it's the right choice of words but almost like a playfulness in at least no i think that is a good choice of words it is very playful and even going back to this like i feel like again it all kind of comes together where he even for a guy who retired you know what a decade ago he's the worst at retiring Um, yeah (laughs) he um he's just i love that he just loves tinkering with stuff like even some of the things like Again, this reminded me of I remember hearing from people being like, oh, he had a version of Raiders of the Lost Ark that was a he turned it into a silent film in black and white. Right. Right. And um, and he'll just fuck around and do stuff like that. And and that stuff's fun. And we don't get enough of that. Right. Like, you know, we other than Topher Grace doing the Star Wars uh, edits online or Zack Snyder's Justice League or something like that. Right. Right. Um, but you don't get a lot of filmmakers going back to something that they either didn't love or even that they did love and they just want to kind of mess around with it and, and just kind of experiment and do something fun. Like um, it just uh, we don't get enough of that. That's why I thought this was a really, really cool experience that like, yeah, maybe someone does something like this and you go to Tiff Bell Lightbox on a Friday night like during the year and you got cinephiles there and everyone knows what they're getting into because it's the re-edit of Kafka and things like that. But um, I like these big events that is kind of like, ooh, what's this going to be? And or even if you knew what it was going to be, like, I think um stuff like this is just kind of a, a wholly unique experience and um you know it's not going to be for everyone but if you're either a fan of Soderbergh or a fan of just kind of messing around with the movies or even the filmmaking process or the editing process or any part of that like I think it's a cool thing to watch because of that yeah I, I, and to your point like you know the idea of the director's cut you know being something that you know, in the 1980s specifically where, you know, you had Blade Runner, which really was a director's cut because that the, you look at the, the, in comparison and contrast to what the theatrical version of that movie was to the final cut and how significant a change is. But over the, the decades, you've, you've seen that term kind of being put on Blu-rays and DVDs. Watered down. Yeah. Used so loosely, you know, just inserting deleted scenes back into the film that maybe don't even work. It's just to extend running time or to justify giving it the title of the director's cut where, you know, not 
wasn't a fan of Zack Snyder's Justice League, but at least that is a director's cut. That does feel like it is his vision on the screen where this where this Mr. Neff is Soderbergh's movie and it is truly earning of that title. Oh, for better or for worse, cut. both of those movies are purely the director getting to do what they wanted, right? Yeah. And, um, and I hope we get kind of more weird experiments like that. Like I just, I think it's really fascinating for someone to go back with having all the knowledge over, you know, whether how it was received originally or, you know, a Soderbergh, all the stuff he's learned over the years in those 30 years and stuff like that. And I, I just, I hope we, I'm all for going back and fucking around. Like, I mean, sure. We poke fun at George Lucas who continuously did that with star Wars and, and things like that. And sometimes it doesn't, you don't always love what someone does because you love the original work or something like that. Sometimes that can be a bad thing because then they make it worse. But in your in your opinion, um, but I'm all for because the original version is usually always going to be there if you want to watch it. Right. Like yeah. the original Kafka, you can still watch if you want, um, which I would still recommend. And he even the said, original Star Wars are harder to find. Right. I mean. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I, I, and I think that's the thing where like that's the difference where, you know, Lucas basically wanted to erase the original cuts of the star wars movies which is also just strange considering you know the directors of two and three uh ivan kushner and richard marquard you know they're they're you know yes they're lucas is the creator of the world but i mean you think that they would have some say in terms of what's happening with the films that they made even though i yes they're both dead now but um there's there is something there where it's like okay lucas should be allowed to do whatever he wants. And and yeah, you don't have to do agree with what he's doing. Certainly we have, you know, talked about this time and time again. Um, but the original one should be there. And, and nobody's saying that the original Kafka, even though nobody really is like championing that film uh, is, is going to be disposed of. It's just nice to have both. And, and Soderbergh, even in the introduction said, you know, when Mr. Neff is available, maybe watch that movie first and then watch Kafka afterwards and, and then sort of look at like, this is the movie I wanted to make. And I finally got the chance to do that. Whether or not you like it, that's, that's totally up to you. But now you can see what my intent was compared to what the studio's mandate was and what, and I think that's fascinating. And that's cool to have. Absolutely. Film, for film classes and, and stuff in the future too. Like I think it'll be really interesting for film teachers to kind of have these things and show you how much an edit can change something or how much, you know, stuff like that can change a movie and, you know, whether you have full control versus what a studio tells you. Like I think uh, I would, you know, program it as a double feature where you had to watch both versions and, and write a paper on it or something that could be cool. Right. Yeah. Another movie that's also like that, that I, I would recommend uh, is Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, which is his last film with with Robert De Niro and James Woods and Joe Pesci and Treat Williams. And um, you look at the original cut of that movie, which is well over three hours long, um, that played at can that, um, you know, is this again sprawling epic and then you watch the theatrical cut that was released in america it's butchered like it, it yeah it, there's stuff in that film i think i own the director's cut i still haven't watched it but. you probably have both of them in there um probably, as, yeah. as i'm talking i'm going to uh quickly grab it 
so I can yeah. show you it. I'm usually not a prop guy, but I feel like this is necessary. We're on video now. You can use all your props. Man. Yeah, I know. Uh, hold on. I got to And for audio here. listeners, Eric has a giant wall of Blu-rays behind him. If you didn't, if you've never watched the YouTube version, uh, okay. or didn't know. So okay. yeah, so this is, this is it. And then with, with this, there's, um, the, the, uh, so, okay. I'm just looking on this. Now I would show you my version, but it's on. Yeah. Apple so the TV. extended director's cut, the theatrical cut, and with both versions of, of the film, I think they're both worth watching, but if you only watch the theatrical version, it's it's terrible because it doesn't make any sense. There are scenes where did like there's one scene where De Niro like enters one room and then miraculously shows up in another, and there's no reasoning. So for there's it. actual like continuity errors and stuff like that. Yeah, and and so in in the extended cut, you find out that oh, the way that he got to this other room is through this like secret childhood like compartment that he would always go through as a kid, and they show you that, and they cut all that out, and it just doesn't make any sense when you're watching it in the theatrical yeah. cut. So you know that's 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 another reason to watch you know a, a, an extended or director's cut version versus the theatrical cut because even though maybe one version is you know inept compared to what the vision of that director was if you watch the theatrical version you're you're getting the full experience but then again you can also say that you know sometimes it can be a little bit pretentious or over the top and there are plenty of movies where you look at like Vim Vendors you know uh until the end of the world uh with with William uh Hurt and you're like I don't know if I really want to watch a six hour film, you know, about sort of a post-apocalyptic setting. That's also kind of a detective story. Um, but it, I mean, it's, it's kind of worth it just to look at it from the point of view of, again, sort of where the cut is. Right. And like what was deemed like, okay, this is, this is what we have to do in order to fit this movie in a theater for, um, you know, two to three weeks or something mm -hmm. like that. So, mm -hmm. and especially in the U S where I think, you know, in parts of Europe and Asia, people are more open to longer cuts or even, you know, when people were growing up in the in the 1960s and 70s, there was a time where longer movies were considered fine. You know, you look at something like Lawrence of Arabia, that movie now would never play anywhere ever. You know? I mean, we're getting a two hour and 45 minute Bond movie in like three weeks but so. that's still that's still under like you know yeah yeah three we, hours, we don't get many right? three and a half hour movies no. anymore right no very rarely like what's the longest thing in recent memory Endgame at three hours and one minute yeah like, i think they'll when it comes to mainstream uh cinema like something that plays in multiplexes and things like that i'm trying to think what else like even the irishman was cut down from what i thought <laughs> it would be like you think that that, that movie would be close to four hours four right? hours right yeah and it's and, over three hours too isn't it yeah or close to it at least yeah um so yeah you don't get but this is a, a breezy 90 minutes yes. he cut 20 minutes out of it yeah actually so i think that's impressive uh, i think this is a really interesting convo eric about we didn't like focus too much on the movie but i mean the movie kafka's exists for 30 years and and the biggest things we told you it's a silent movie now he cut 20 minutes out of it color-coded subtitles weird soundtrack that weirdly mix uh, works with it um and i had a good time with it so a weird one to put a rating on but i'm gonna give it a, a 3.5 and i really enjoyed this conversation about like director's cuts and messing with editing and stuff like that yeah i'm gonna give it a four out of five and just mm. 
again, part of it is just the experience because overall you're looking at something that is now archival footage for the most part. Mm-hmm. And and there's more of a, a curiosity there than I think anything else. But I think that curiosity was rewarded with a really uh, novel movie going experience and one that can't be replicated. And it just was a reminder, especially now that, you know, we don't go to the theaters as much as we used to just because of the world we're living in. Um, but this was kind of a that kind of experience of being reminded of going to a rep theater and Mm -hmm. watching something that maybe you haven't seen for, you know, the first time or, or watching, you know, a a programmer put together something really interesting and, and yeah, it's why you go to the movies and it just excited me in a way that I haven't had that excitement in a very long time. Cool, man. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Uh, We have a lot of other TIFF coverage that you guys can check out right here on YouTube on the Untitled uh, YouTube channel uh, or on audio uh, podcast services at Untitled Movie Reviews if you want to listen to us on the go or not have to see our stupid faces. Uh, You can get all of our one-stop shop for everything untitled over on Letterboxd. Our HQ is untitled underscore movies. We'll have our average ratings for everything that we watch, as well as links to our YouTube videos, uh, our reviews in podcast form. Just everything's over there. So untitled underscore movies over on Letterboxd. Uh, as always, my name is Matt Rohrbeck. You can find more of my work uh, around the internet, but mostly at UntitledMoviePodcast.com. And you can follow me on all of the social medias at Matt Rohrbeck. And I'm Eric Marchin. You can find more of my video reviews at RogersTV.com. So I send a scene and on the social medias at EM6211. Until next time. I feel like we should have like a little flashing subtitle at the bottom, say, promoting uh, Soderbergh's website. <laughs> sure. Yeah, just a flashing. Bye now. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>